write about why the Trinity matters, and I'm anticipating, you know, some of the themes in the book, but it's a freestanding lecture that has its own kind of contours. And I want to talk about five ideas, if I can get to them, in the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. And uh, here's the basic themes. Making sense of where everything comes from, understanding a mystery of salvation and the connection of mysteries, helping us think about God's own inner life, understanding ourselves, and understanding our political life together in society. So I'm going to try to give, you might say, theological postcard versions of all these uh, topics in bite-sized sort of morsels to talk about why the Trinity helps us with all these themes. So the first one was making sense of where everything comes from. It's not something you necessarily think about every day on your commute or that you may wonder about when you're in ordinary conversations or when you're distracted maybe by, uh, you know, the ordinary media or the news cycle. But the fact of the matter is we are a mystery, just a kind of philosophical enigma in the sense that there's a question mark around our our very existence. Why are we? Where do we come from? What are our origins? What are we for? What may we what way what might we reasonably hope for out of existence? Uh, a way to put this that's slightly metaphorical is to say we are downstream from the first font of being. Uh, all of us have come into being, come into existence in a universe of things that seem to have come into existence before us. There are things coming into existence around us. There are events happening as you might say the universe unfolds. And we wonder about our um, ultimate origins and final ends. And of course, you know, there have always been people who thought that the human being is a kind of arrangement of accidental material configurations, and there's no real, you know, deep explanation of why we exist. There's other people who think that somehow deep down we are the divine, or the divine is, you know, resonant in us and as us. And then there's some people who think that there's an absolute principle that's impersonal, you know, that what we call human persons have emerged from an an impersonal kind of source that is unknown and that we return to that's impersonal. You know, there's a kind of an illusion of personality, personal identity, of, and of desire. But the, the great answer of what we could call mystery, the mystery of monotheism, or the, the claims of, about, of monotheism regarding the mystery of the world, is that somehow a numinously personal reality is the source of our being. We are downstream from being because we come from some mystery we could call by analogy personal, not in the sense of having a human personal psychology or developmental psychology and rooted in an animal body like ours, but, you know, in the sense of being somehow a, a font of wisdom and goodness that we've been given being by a wise and free, in some sense, free initiative of one who has communicated being to us, who's giving everything existence. Now, I think there are good arguments for that. I think there's good philosophical arguments for the existence of God. But even if that is the case, and I'm not going to go into making those arguments now, it still remains a fact that if we have been created by a God that is personal, or if the God that is personal is somehow sustaining all things in being and even present in all things mysteriously as creator, so that as Paul says in the book of Acts, we, in him we live and move and have our being, it still remains that we don't know that mystery of God in itself directly and personally. But what the Christian claim is most fundamentally is that God has revealed himself in his own personal life 
and has revealed, you might say, that before there was anything else in God himself, in God's own inner life, there is personal communion. That in God's own life is the personal communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Father, the Word, and the Spirit of love. We'll talk more about this language of the Trinitarian life shortly. And so we come forth from a mystery of um, eternal rationality or wisdom and eternal love, of the paternity of God who's eternally begetting the Word and Son who's become human in Jesus Christ, and who is eternally spirating the Holy Spirit, who is the love of the Father and the Son. Well, there's a lot, if, if that's true, and I'm, I'm, I'm simply claiming that it could be, if that's true, here's some interesting features about that. So that would mean, first, that God freely discloses himself to us. We don't, we don't possess personal knowledge of God as a right or by a kind of natural, uh, you know, a natural advantage or natural power. It's, it's something God has to freely disclose to us, but that God freely has, has freely disclosed to us, that God has made himself known as Trinity to, you might say, alleviate some of the enigma of the mystery of existence. And so as to, you might say, um, remedy our sense of existential orphanage, of being orphans and not knowing where we come from or who has made us. The Trinity has spoken, even one one of the Trinity has become human so that we can know God. This also would mean that then the world is a world created by transcendent rationality or a transcendent intelligence or transcendent wisdom. That in the beginning was the Word, as as John says at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and the Word uh, was He through whom all things have been made. The word Word in Greek is logos, which can also mean lo, uh, concept or reason or intelligence. So it means that you might say before the intelligibility of our world, that we can go out and study in scientific, historical, and philosophical ways, there's a more antecedent rationality or or um, wisdom in God himself, and that God has authored this world of intelligibility. Indeed, God has authored our intelligence so that we can go out and seek the truth about the world and about God. And God is a mystery of love, that the world has come about because God loves the world and God is good. As John's gospel famously says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's to that point that God has loved the world. So there's a primal love that's the source of all things. And that's a very powerful uh, hard to believe in some ways, but powerful idea that before all else, there is love and that there's the love in God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from that love, God has made the world. And we are produced and held in being by a God who loves us. And that we could know God personally, mystically, that grace has made it possible to have a certain kind of personal relationship and you might say mystical experience, mysterious experience of God in faith. And that's basically available to anyone who who wants access to that through baptism and through the life of prayer. So, in the beginning, there were persons. You know, that's the first idea. There's my, my colleague and friend, my older colleague and esteemed friend, Eleanor Stump, uh, always talks about that famous, uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell who was giving a talk and I think was, you know, voicing some atheist materialist ideas. And there was a woman who raised her hand on the front row and said, uh, sir, everything you say is ridiculous because we all know from the Indian parable that uh, the world rests on the back of a tortoise. And he said, well, madam, what is underneath the tortoise? And she said, sir, it is tortoises all the way down. And um, 
you know, what, what, what Professor Stump points out is that for, for Christians, actually, it's persons all the way down, not tortoises. That in the beginning, there's a communion of persons. Our personal identity made in the image of God, we come from personal communion. We come from logos and agape, from reason and love, and are made for personal communion in reason and love because God has created the world. And we can even know that God interpersonally by grace. Okay, so making sense of where everything comes from, that's a huge claim, of course. But, you know, it's a, it's a kind of basic stance towards reality that's got to be right if the Trinity is really real, if God's revealed himself as Trinity. Now, let me pass to this second idea now, a mystery of salvation and the connection of mysteries. So you've always got people who say, well, you know, the Trinity, it's a very subtle uh, kind of intellectual project to try to understand God as Trinity. It's a subtle game. I mean, who can, you know, there's these speculative theologians who sit around and worry about it. Um, but, if, you know, for practical life, does it really matter? Well, I would say it's actually probably one of the most practical ideas there can be. Maybe not immediately for like, you know, if you're trying to find the can opener to open the can and you have no other way to get in, you know, get into the product. But yeah, if you're thinking about the big question of why you live and what you live for, the Trinity matters because at base there is in some way at the heart of the Trinitarian doctrine of the church, what we could call in big fancy theological language, a soteriological claim. That's to say, soteriological, a claim about salvation, a claim about the redemption of the human person, the forgiveness of sins, and more importantly, even our ultimate happiness. How can we achieve salvation and beatitude? Not just the forgiveness of sins, but elevation into the happiness of eternal life. Because look, the, the fundamental Trinitarian claim is also this. God is a communion of persons and, and God wishes to communicate with us, communicate to us what is greatest in reality, which is God's own self or God's own life. Right. So the, the truth about the Trinity is also a truth about God's intentions which is that God wants to communicate to creatures made in his image by grace, a participation in God's own life. And in doing so to render us happy or beatified, beatific, to use a kind of technical jargon, you know, in terms of like becoming a saint, being a blessed, a a beatified person. That's to participate in the life of God and to see God in God's own self, to see the essence and life of God. Why is this related to the Trinity? Well, because... Christianity makes three shocking claims, basically, that are all logically interrelated, and if true, existentially interrelated and very practical. The first is, God is a mystery we call the Trinity. How do we know that? Well, because secondly, God has become human. That's a very uniquely Christian claim, at least in the sense that God has become human only once, and that one, that, that God in a, in, my, in a divine hypostasis or divine person took on a human nature, because Jesus is a divine person, the person of the eternal word and son expressing his own divine identity in a human nature. That's a very distinctive Christian claim. It's different than other monotheistic forms of thought. God became human. Why did he become human? To reveal the, the mystery of God's own life, the Trinitarian life. But not just that, not just so we know the Trinity, but to communicate to us by grace participation in God's own life. And so God is a mystery we call the Trinity. He, God has become human in that the second person of the Trinity has become a human being, taken on a human nature. So as you might say, to image what it is, what God is in our human nature. 
And in doing this, God's communicated to us the grace to commune with God in this life by faith and hope and charity and to possess God perfectly in the life to come in the beatific vision, in the vision of God. Okay, so that's also a novel Christian claim that we can actually see God or be united with God eternally by knowing God in his own self and essence. Not just know it God through his effects, not just homage God or revere God and worship him, but actually see God in our intellects, worship him and possess him in our wills, be united with him by grace. In some sense, then, in a certain sense, you could say, attenuated sense, become God. Uh, you know, the famous phrase um, from the fathers of the church, God became human so that we might become God, or maybe said a little more carefully, God became human so that we could be united with God in the most ultimate way, which is to see God face to face and be blessed or beatified by that. Right. So you've got these three novel claims, the Trinity, the incarnation, and then you might say divinization, the vision of God. Well, they all hold together. And actually, they hold together with atonement because God became human to atone for our sins and unite us to himself. So once you start to think about the Trinity, you start to understand, you might say, the logic of mystery, the logic of what God's doing in the world, of what he aims to communicate to us. And it turns out he aims to save us by communicating to us himself a participation in his own life. Now, however abstract that may seem, it's not that abstract if you begin to pray to God and live for God in the most basic of ways by listening to your conscience, trying to avoid sin, trying to serve Christ, trying to live with Christ, trying to acquire an inner life with God and with Christ. Um, so, you know, living this mystery of salvation kind of orients you to the aim of seeing the Trinity, seeing God face to face. That's like the deepest aspiration of what it means to be saved. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. So that's that's ma major. It's massive. The reception of grace and the forgiveness of sins. But it's then from that being oriented into friendship with God now and for eternity. The third thing is that even though we hope to see God face to face, it's good to think about God's inner life in this world, even if it's pretty abstract to think about the Trinity. It's still helpful because the more you think about the Trinity intellectually, the more you can actually love the Trinity. Um, it helps you focus your mind on God and think about the mystery of God that's been revealed to us and, and grow in appreciation of the New Testament, the revelation of God in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to give you some abstract Trinitarian notions, just a few of them, four, four notions, in fact. But the first thing to say is, you know, thinking about the Trinity is it takes place in the obscurity of faith, like in the darkness of faith. We, we receive the, the revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament, we adhere to it in the faith, and we try to love God in the faith. And the faith implies both illumination and obscurity. The illumination is great. We can actually kind of in some way touch God or know God in Christ, and we can know the Father and know the Holy Spirit. There's something really personal about it, and it, that personal life with the, with the Father and Jesus and the Spirit can grow. They do. It does grow. If you trust in the process and you receive the sacraments and you pray and you try to develop an inner life, your your experience of the Trinity will grow. It takes time, but it does happen. But there's still that obscurity. And then you try to think coherently about what the Trinity must be. And there are you use abstract notions, but they're pretty useful as long as you return to the concrete knowledge of the Trinity in the personal act of faith. And you're thinking about the Father 
and about Jesus Christ and about the Holy Spirit, who you, you might say, you know most fundamentally in this interpersonal way, in the obscurity and the luminousness of faith and the judgments of faith that we know, by which we know the Trinity. So here's four notions that can help us. Relations of origin. Persons of the Trinity are distinguishable in their eternal life based on relations of origin because the Son is the eternal immaterial word or logos, concept, reason, these are different ways to say it, the eternal logos or word of the Father who is begotten from the Father from all eternity and so relates to the Father as he from whom the word originates. There's a relation of origin of the Son to the Father because the Son originates from the Father eternally as his begotten word, immaterially begotten eternal word. The Spirit relates to the Father and the Son uh, as originating from them by relation of origin. He relates to them both as from one principle, as the mutually spirated love of the Father and the Son. So one person is explained, you might say, understood by analogy as a rela- in terms of a relation of origin according to knowledge or intellect. The eternal word of the Father, immaterial thought, you might say, or wisdom, the gotten of the Father from all eternity. And the other person is understood by analogy to a relation of love, uh, an eternal spiration of love, that is the, the, the love of the Father and the Son from whom he proceeds us from one principle. This means then, and I move now to my second abstract idea, that there are eternal immaterial processions in God. The word proceeds from the Father by an eternal um, procession of begetting, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son by an eternal procession of spiration. These aren't temporal processes. These aren't historical processes. They are not biological or material processes. Uh, the analogy would be more to like the immaterial activity of the human person when we think through an immaterial concept or we love through an immaterial act of volition. So, for example, we can know ourselves and knowing ourselves conceive an understanding of ourselves. And in loving ourselves, we can uh, there's love that proceeds for uh, spirates, you know, forth from the will as we love ourselves or as we love other people. And in fact, if we love ourselves in a balanced and non-egotistical way, we can love other people. And when we love other people and they love us, it helps us love ourselves. There's a kind of virtuous circle there. But the point is there's knowledge of self and love of self and knowledge of others and love of others in us. And we can have a certain very um, imperfect but real analogical similitude that we identify of immaterial knowledge in us, the begetting of wisdom of self-knowledge and knowledge of others, the big the spiration of love, of love of self and love of others in ourselves. There's something like this and something very unlike this in the eternal immaterial processions of the word and the spirit, from which there is then, there arises the third notion, I'm going to use the distinction of persons. Now, persons here doesn't mean like a, a personality, a psychology, psychological personality, you know, having an animal body. And it doesn't really mean like uh, three Cartesian ghosts or uh, numinous consciousnesses. It means something like um, a mode of subsistence of one who has a personal nature. So what I mean by that is like uh, Peter and Paul are both rational animals. They have an intellectual nature, but each Peter has a different way of being human, of being a rational animal than Paul. Um, They're equally human, but in two different modes of being, two different 
ways of being human. So you take two people in a family, the father and the mother, and then maybe the child. They're three, they're all equally human, but the three different realizations or modes of what it means to be human. So by analogy, there's something like this in the mystery of the Trinity where the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and they're not just equally God the way three human beings are equally human. They're all equally the one God, but in three subsistent modes, because the Father in being the one God communicates all he is as God to the Son, and the Son is the begotten word of God possesses in himself all that the Father is as God, and the Father and the Son communicate all that they are as God to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit possesses in himself all that is pre uh, present in the deity or all that pertains to God uh, in a mode of the one who's spirated from the Father and the Son. Now, I just said all that very quickly, and it sounds pretty abstract. Uh, it's actually quite coherent. I would even say it's rather beautiful, not just like an abstract geometric, geometrical problem, but actually as a way of thinking about what the inner life of God must be. But that takes some time and appreciation from working through Trinitarian theology to think more about what God must be if God is Trinity. The last idea is unity of essence. And that's what I just alluded to. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not just one in having each the divine nature, but they are each the one God. They differ only by their relations of origin and their processions, but each possesses the plenitude of the deity. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So we say of the eternal Son of God in the Nicene Creed. The Father has in himself from all eternity the plenitude of the deity. He's the uncreated font of Trinitarian life. He communicates all that God is, all that he is as God to the Son. So the Son possesses himself all that is in the Father, as Jesus says in the Gospel, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And the Father and the Son communicate all that they are to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love, with whom they share all that they are as God, so that all that is in the Father and the Son is in the Spirit. All that's in the Son is in the Father and the Spirit. All that's in the Father is in the Son and the Spirit. And so they're each the one God, and yet they are truly distinct as persons. And this is um, logically coherent. But more profoundly, it's a way of thinking about interpersonal communion of the deepest sort, deeper than anything that we can experience between three human persons. So let's just think about this a little bit more, if you bear with me. This is the most abstract part of the talk, but there's kind of two fundamental models for thinking about the Trinity, the inner life of God. And they're not competitive, but they emphasize different points. So the first model, based on what I've been talking about, is what I could kind of call the monological model. By monological, I don't mean a person just giving a monologue. I mean a one person, a singular person, a monopersonal uh, subject who has in himself eternal logos or reason and eternal uh, spirit or charity. This would be the thought of the, the mystery of the Trinity being, you know, being developed kind of from the image of the human person made in the image of the Trinity. The, the, uh, where the Father is eternally the one God who begets his logos or son, his reason, his wisdom from himself, communicating all that he is in the beginning of the wisdom to the son, and then spirates in the love of himself and his son, the Holy Spirit as love. So it's kind of a model in which you start from the idea of the Father is like the one subject, and then you have the eternally begotten son and eternally spired spirit, kind of like you have in one human subject intellect and volitional love so just as you and i are each a human person with our autonomy and we have you know intellectual thoughts that proceed forth from us reasonings that proceed forth from us and we have uh, love 
that's a, a constitutive part of our, our our life, our volitional love. So in a certain mysterious transcendent way, there's the eternal father and his wisdom and love who creates all things. Because that's like more anthropomorphic model. The other model is the model of three persons who are in one nature. You could say like the father, the mother, and the child, where they all have uh, a nature in which they commune. And that nature is in a certain sense communicated from one to another. Now, it also happens through biological material processes. The father and the son, the father and the mother conceive the child and communicate, you know, a human nature to the child. But obviously here we're talking about three different individuals, not three who are one in being. And we're talking about uh, three material beings, sort of about material begetting. And that's not uh, apt for the Trinity, but it is true that in the Trinity, you can think sort of about three different modes of being human, of uh, being God, kind of like you have three different modes of being human in a family of a father, mother, and a child, where each one is a certain subsistent way of being human, a certain personal mode of being human. Well, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three subsistent modes, three different ways of being the one God. But in an immaterial way, and as the one God, not as three substances, like, you know, a man, a woman, and a child are three different beings, but the Trinity is one in being in nature. So these two models are kind of self-corrective, you know, like the first one emphasizes this sort of transcendent unity and the numinous paternity of God, who's the source of all things in his wisdom and his love. The second emphasizes the distinction of persons and the total communicability of the divine essence, like the divine life and nature and mystery of God is communicated from the Father to the Son, from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. And if you kind of use them to correct each other, you know, the first one's stronger on the sort of transcendent unity of God and the immateriality of God, because it thinks about intellect and will. The second one is stronger on the distinction of persons and the total communicability of the substance or the nature of one person to another. So God is the kind of a mysterious communion of persons who are subsistent, immaterial, three subsistent, immaterial persons who are one in nature and who are each the one God, in which the communication of the divine nature is made according to an analogy of intellect and will. Now, at this point, you're saying, okay, that's great. You know, that I'm glad you worked so hard to get that all straightened out. That pretty much eludes me. Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, seeing God face-to-face is going to be a lot better than thinking about all this abstractly. I grant you that. But it's not a bad thing. I mean, my job is, as a theologian to think about this in more like detailed, conceptually ornate ways. It's true. But if you start to work at it and read things like Augustine's book on the Trinity or some of even St. Thomas on the Trinity and the Summa Theologiae, or read some of the great mystics about the Trinitarian persons, it does begin to work on you. And I mean, this is a lot easier than calculus. Believe me, this is a lot easier. I mean, just conceptually, logically, you know, this is easier than so many other disciplines we invest time in. So you could ask, you could turn the question around and say, why don't you spend time on this? You spend a lot of time on figuring out how to pay your taxes, you know, how, you know, about financial strategy or, you know, reading the news about this or that event in the world. Well, what if you spent some time thinking about the Trinity, right? So it's a kind of a culture of intellectual wisdom. Uh, that the church needs to maintain and pursue where we actually want to familiarize ourselves with the mystery of God. And yeah, okay, we have used some abstractions, but we're trying to actually grow in our mystical and personal uh, appreciation and apprehension of who God is. So now I'm on to my fourth point, and the fourth and fifth are very closely related. The mystery of the Trinity helps us understand ourselves. 
it's true we know ourselves better than we know the Trinity. You know, from our perspective, we have approximate experience of ourselves. The Trinity is very mysterious and revealed to us. But we come from the Trinity. And so even as we begin to initially understand the Trinity, we begin to actually understand where we come from. Remember where we started. We're downstream in the in the river of being from somewhere else. And that ultimately is downstream in being from the Trinity. So even though we can only grasp a little of the most ultimate things, a little light about the most ultimate things casts a huge perspective on the things we know better when we understand where we really come from, that we have, a, you might say, a, a Trinitarian homeland from where we come and to where we're uh, ordered. And it helps you really start to think about the image of God. Now, when St. Thomas talks about the Imago Dei or the image of God, he says, this is very important, that we are made unto the image and likeness of God. So what he's saying is that we have something in us that's stable, that's Imago Dei, but it's also meant to open to God himself and to love and knowledge of other persons. And so in, in us opening to God by nature and grace, by returning to God and knowing and loving all other persons in light of God, we become unto or more perfectly conformed to the image and likeness of God. So it's not just static, it's also dynamic. So when we think about the Trinity, we can start to think about what we are, you might say stably, and then also dynamically, what are we called to be? Where are we meant to go? Now, when St. Thomas thinks about, like, you might say the stable image of God in us, he says, like, okay, we image the Father insofar as we each possess in ourselves a personal autonomy. So, okay, our, our being as an autonomous, rational animal is something we possess. It's obviously also a gift. We're given existence. The Father has given us to be. He's created us in his image and likeness. And as a result of that, the image of the Father in us is that he's given us to be a kind of autonomous, rational, volitionally free being. We have a little bit, you might say, it's it's not quite the right language, but I want to say autonomy on loan. Not in the sense that we have our autonomy apart from God. God is sustaining us in being at every moment. But it's actually kind of the opposite idea. Because God is sustaining us in being as free, rational creatures, we have this dignity and this autonomy that are really inalienable, that cannot be taken away even by violence, you know, or by exterior imposition upon us. So that's kind of the image of the Father in us. That's why, you know, something like education or uh, engagement with others and their freedom and their dignity intellectually, you have to respect their autonomy. It's like something of the image of the Father in them. He sustains in us. And then it works itself out through the procession of intellect, because we have an intellect as being seeking the truth dynamically. We're agents of truth. What does that mean? Well, first it means the intellect goes out through the field of the senses and tries to extract intelligibility from things. We go out into the field of being. The intellect works, harvests every day in the field of being. It goes out and it tries to extract knowledge of essences, knowledge of properties, knowledge of existence in things and understand things. Maybe in a more banal way, maybe in a deeper way. Philosophy is like the deep, the deep farming, you know, the going and finding the deep roots of things and farming in the deep fields of being and trying to root out the, the causes and explanations of things philosophically, metaphysically. The intellect is capable of knowledge of the world around us in its deepest, uh, you might say, essences, causes, uh, structures. 
And extracting that knowledge, then we we ruminate on it, we reason about it, we go back, we make deeper judgments, we go back in light of those judgments, we contemplate the world, and we acquire deeper wonder and admiration. And we then can communicate the truth to others and become agents, active agents of truth, truth communicators. You might say truth preachers or you know, truth teachers. So we're truth assimilators. We reason about truth. We try to enrich our conceptions of the truth through understanding, reasoning, and judgment. We go back out into the world and we can teach the truth. That's Imago Dei in us. We are made in the image of the eternal word, the procession of light. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the eternally begotten Son, who's the wisdom of the Father. Well, we have that image in us as truth seekers and truth givers. And we're also made in the image of the Trinity because we're able to love the good in light of the truth, to love the good in light of the truth, to know the truth about the goodness of things, to, to apprehend intellectually the goodness of things, and then to love that goodness to love the goodness of another person, to grasp the goodness of another person, their qualities amidst, yes, perhaps their limitations or their defects, but to see their goodness and to love them genuinely, to see the goodness in them. So intellect, you might say, in perceiving the goodness of others, the truth of their goodness, liberates us to love volitionally, freely, and deliberately the good of the other. And there's a world of goods, just like there's a field of being, there's a field of goods. And we can love, we can love better or worse, more nobly or less nobly, more prudently or wisely or less prudently and less wisely. And we can begin to even love God, you know, who we can know by nature and by grace and know God in order to love God. And then, therefore, there's a procession or spiration of love in us. We become beings who can spirate love, who can be those who choose to love freely the good that we know by the light of the intellect. So we're made in the image of the Holy Spirit, too. Right? So we have that, you might say, paternal autonomy. Each of us is like a, a little parent in the order of personal identity, a mother or father of truth and goodness it is a funny way to put it. But, you know, we beget thoughts of truth. We communicate thoughts of truth and we can spirate love and we can love the good. So there's a little imago day in each of us. And it's rendered perfect or like unto God when we return to God. That's the best way to be human is to love, to, to contemplate in the truth and to love what is most noble. What is most noble in the world? Bowling. No. Um, farming? Tree farming? No. It's great. It's beautiful. Bonsai plants? No. Um, the contemplation of the stars? Zoology? Those are all very noble pursuits. The highest pursuit is the knowledge of God in the order of nature and in the order of grace. So the mystical relationship with God is possible by grace in the contemplation of the Trinity ennobles the intellect and the will because now we can know the Trinity and possess the Trinity in love. And this is what most ennobles the human being, to contemplate the Trinity. This is why the saints are so interesting to us. You know, people like Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross or St. Benedict or St. Dominic or St. Francis. Like, why did St. Francis become so radically poor? Because he found what was ultimate and he gave up everything for it. What did he find that was ultimate? The contemplation of the Trinity. He discovered the contemplation of Jesus Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he acquired radical poverty to give himself entirely to the contemplation of the Trinity. Right, so the human being is ennobled by the higher it goes in the order of the truth and the good. And so when we see the saints, they help us know ourselves in the sense that they help us show the highest and best aspiration of the person. And that's very beautiful. 
Trinity and the saints who pursue knowledge of the Trinity help us know ourselves. And of course, the best thing in the universe after the Trinity and God is other human beings made in the image of God. The angels too, they're harder for us to know from our vantage point. They're, they're real, but they're harder for, harder for us to grasp. So other human beings made in the image of the Trinity are also places of great interest. You know, so it's interesting to travel to cities man has built and to see museums and to, you know, learn, study history. But actually, in some ways, the most interesting thing in the world to travel and see is the person in front of you, because each person is a little world, a little cathedral, a little house of light and of charity that is constructed. I mean, using a metaphor, right? Constructed a cathedral of the Trinity, uh, a little house of the Trinity. Maybe it doesn't know it. Maybe that person doesn't know it. But that's like the dignity of the person in their deepest self. Last idea, final idea, and briefly, the Trinity helps us understand our political life together in society. There are political aspects to the knowledge of the Trinity. And I would even argue, this is I'm not going to make this argument here, don't worry. But I think you can't really explain the universalism of Western Europe. European culture and its academic, political, and literary life unless you understand medieval Trinitarian metaphysics. Because the medieval, the university began uh, 800 years ago in the context of the study of the Trinity and the philosophy that was propedeutic to the study of the Trinity in Catholic theology. And so the aspiration is to understand everything universally, from which we get the notion of universality and university, uh, in light of all being, all sciences of being, and the author of all being, who is the mystery of the Trinity, that's a God. So it's in light of that kind of mystery of God that the the aspiration to universal universal knowledge began. Why am I talking about the university, universality, universality of being, of everything created by the Trinity as the source of the, of the life of the, the university in the Middle Ages? Well, because I think it's really important for political life. Basically, our political life needs to provide for us a space where human beings living together in social friendship can pursue in mutual respect the fullness of the truth. I'd say that's actually one of the first and ultimate um, freedoms of human culture, the full pers- the pursuit the f- to make space for the freedom of the pursuit of the truth in its fullness. The human being can make terrible errors in the in the pursuit of the freedom of the truth, in the in the free pursuit of the fullness of the truth. But the human being needs to seek freely the fullness of the truth, and it's only when cultures seek that universality of truth, the fullness of the truth, that they are fully human. But if you believe in the Trinity and you believe there's uncreated procession of truth of the Word from the Father, and all things have been made in the Word, then everything that has been made and is therefore pregnant with meaning and with truthfulness, everything is is available to be studied and known. Everything the mind can come to know somehow comes from the Word. All truth comes somehow from the Trinity, from the truth of the Word, from the truth of the Holy Spirit, and we need to seek the fullness of the truth. That means that you have to have a culture, politically, if you believe in the Trinity, in which the truth can be studied argued about and pursue, and then we can pursue knowledge of it in its fullness. And even if, you know, we talk about religious revelation, you have to be free to debate and dispute. And it's true that, you know, there's been illiberalism in the Catholic tradition regarding uh, the treat, mistreatment of, you know, people who are heretical. Um, but 
I think on the whole, actually, Catholicism created the conditions for the free pursuit of scientific knowledge, historical knowledge, modern historical critical study of the Bible, and many other subjects. It's true that sometimes that kind of a built-in protectiveness about the church, the church should be protective of her children and of the faith, but there's also a kind of deep passion for the truth and a sense of responsibility for the truth. That's a very important part of political culture. It frees you from ideology, and it frees you for the real deliberation and, and debate of ideas. Um, and then the second thing is, if God is the ultimate good and all goods come from the Holy Trinity, then all subsidiary goods that God has created have their place. So there's a place for the goods of artistic culture. There's a place for the goods of family life. There's a good a place for the goods of um, communal deliberation through bodies of political subsidiarity. Uh, for self-governance of the human community through processes that are deliberative and participatory, for goods of education, for the goods of um, meaningful work. Uh, and so, you, you know, it's complicated to see how all those goods relate to each other. But the point is that a society that believes in the Trinity or people who believe in the Trinity, who live in society with others, I'll say perhaps that way, want to cultivate an appreciation of all the diverse created goods in their integral wholeness and think about their complementarity and the ways they should be pursued in a, in a balanced and meaningful way. So what I mean is things like, you know, a person who believes in the Trinity wants to defend the good of the family, the good of the local community, the good of subsidiary institutions, private and public. It wants to defend the, the, the place of the common good, the political process, role of education in the university, the place, of the arts, the place of, um, nation states and the international community that arises from the various nation states or, you know, smaller or larger without crushing the, the lower subsidiary communities. Because all of that has somehow a note of created goodness that comes from the uncreated goodness of God. Uh, it's like this. This is the basic idea of this whole last part is if you take the widest framework, you make room for everything within the frame. But the widest framework is God who's the author of all created being, therefore of everything that is. So if you're seeking a universal knowledge of all truth and a universal appreciation of all good, um, you're going to be pressed to go further in that appreciation of universal truth and universal goodness and to see it all as intricately related if you are open to the highest and, and widest horizons, which is the horizon of God and the Trinity. If you get rid of that widest horizon, it's easy to shrink the field of truth and, the, and the, the field of goodness to a much more reduced spectrum, like just the things I can see, thank you very much, or just my political party, thank you very much, or just the political ideology I read in the internet this week. And then the human mind and will can become very restricted, very closed in on themselves with, you know, kind of party spirit, as Paul calls it. So our communion of persons as created human persons made in God's image is a communion in the pursuit of the fullness of the truth and the pursuit of love of one another and of the various diverse goods that are constitutive of our common life together, of our of the common good we share together of a life with one another. That common life of the search for the truth and the search for goodness and love shared and participated in by a multitude of human persons, that 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 framework is expanded when you have the Trinity and God in the background to open you up to the widest horizon of universality. And that's why the church and the university and the political culture, when they're doing well, and they don't always do well, but when they're all three doing well, they open us up to a 
a broader horizon of communion and of freedom to pursue the truth and find the truth and contemplate the truth and to love God and neighbor uh, intensely and profoundly in a balanced way and to love all things that are good in a balanced way in the light of God. Um, and that's not just a theory that can be and is lived. And it's our job as we're Trinitarian believers or believers in the Trinity to try to live that in our own individual and collective life uh, in society and to bring that Trinitarian wisdom into life in society. So I started with making sense of where everything comes from, a mystery of salvation and the connection of mysteries, thinking about God's own inner life, trying to understand ourselves as made in God's image and unto the image and likeness of God, and uh, understanding our political life together in society. I said a lot of things very quickly, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty that's um, imperfect, controversial, and uh, um, unclear even, 